begins now. Capital 263. Welcome to Politics and Beyond on Capital 263. My name is Christopher Farai Charamba. And I'm Tawanda Henry Beatty. And uh, welcome to the best political podcast in Zimbabwe. Um, maybe even the continent. In um, Kosafa. We oh, won the Kosafa Cup. So let's, let's also in claim Kosafa. It's go, it's go. Go politics beyond go. Um, <laughs> Today we have a we have a very special special guest um, who, who you know I can't wait to, for you guys to you know to hear more from. Yeah, it's um, one of the few doctors that I don't I've never actually written research himself as doctor. I don't know what's going on there. I will, you know, when it's genuine, you don't have to go brandishing out by yourself. <laughs> it speaks for itself when you speak. Um, yeah, today is uh, Monday, the tenth yeah. of July. So. Um, Welcome, Dr. Alex Magaisa. We've, we've been waiting to have you on the show. And now that you're in Zimbabwe, we can actually, you know, get down to it. No, thanks very much, guys, for having me here. It's a beautiful setup. I'm enjoying myself and I'm looking forward to the interview. Um, as you rightly pointed out, um, I like to think that um, the work speaks for itself and you don't have to go around announcing your titles. <laughs> No, fantastic. Um, I don't know, maybe for, for, for our listeners, those of you who might not have heard of you, though you have a very big uh, social media presence, almost as big as politics and beyond, um, yeah, could you just uh, <laughs> give us a brief profile of yourself? Oh, yes. Um, I'm a lawyer by training. I studied at the University of Zimbabwe before I left for the UK on a scholarship in 1999, where I did my postgraduate studies in law at the University of Warwick. I've got a master's in law and a PhD. And um, I've been working in the UK for the past 16, 17 years. Uh, first at the University of Nottingham uh, and um, currently at the University of Kent. I've also worked in Jersey, uh, the Channel Islands, a small island between France and England, where I was working in financial services. Okay, wow. That's, uh, I didn't know about the financial services bit. Well, I suppose you also know about my time during the constitution-making process um, when I was one of the advisors to COPAC. And also I worked with uh, the prime minister between 2012 and 2013. Okay, okay. That's, yeah. so, you're, so you're quite knowledgeable on things happening in the political sphere in this country. Uh, some might say so. <laughs> and and uh, did did anyone write your your PhD thesis for you? There's there's allegations that uh, <laughs> some people's PhD thesis were not written by their own hand. So you might just want to clarify right now. <laughs> oh well, um, I did my PhD many years ago now, two thousand three. Okay. Um, you, you don't just get a PhD in the UK. You have to do what is called a viva, an oral examination where you must defend your thesis. And uh, you can't get away with uh, someone writing your thesis when there's an oral examination because you have to defend it. Okay. I, I wonder if people out there are willing to come and defend their PhDs if, if they are brought it up. This is on politics and beyond. I think it's a good test. Um, <laughs> Um, so yeah, today we we have you know lots to unpack, um, and with such a knowledgeable knowledgeable guest, um, you know it's almost overwhelming where to begin. Um, but you know, 
you you began by introducing yourself as a lawyer, so maybe perhaps and 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 also spoke about your time in the constitutional making process. Um, so maybe perhaps uh, you know we can begin we can begin there. Um, it's also the Henry, you've you've how broke, did you find what just, you know, just just repeat your question. You kind of just broke up there. Is the internet doing this to us? Yeah, carry on. Yeah, my question is just to do with, um, um, you know, the good doctor's time at Copac and uh, his experiences there. I mean, a lot of us have watched the um, the Democrats uh, documentary, and we wanted to see if, if that was a fair portray- portrayal of what was going on. Oh yeah, thank you. Um, I was very privileged to be invited to work with COPAC in 2011. Uh, it was a surprise when a later came to my university asking for my services here. And um, I had always believed when I left Zimbabwe in 1999 that I would love to go back home and make some contribution to my country. So to be invited to participate in such a national process was uh, was such a great thing for me. So there was no two ways about it. I packed my bags and I came back to work with uh, the parties that were writing the new constitution. I have to say that um, apart from making my own personal contributions, it was a fascinating experience, an experience from which I learned a lot, not only about our politics, but our people. Um, there was lots and lots of information, data that had been gathered by the research teams. There was also lots of information that had been gathered over the years uh, because, you know, the constitution-making process didn't begin with COPAC. It began way back in 1997 with the formation of the National Constitutional Assembly, which was advocating for a new constitution at the time. So all those those things were very important in the constitution-making process, including the draft that was produced by the Shijigawa Siku Commission in 2000. Although it was rejected by the people, it was still an important oh, resource. It looked like we had lost Henry there. Let me just get him back on. Hello? Yeah, man. Yeah, okay. We'd lost you again. But um, we'll just let uh, Omar Gaisa continue from where he was. He was talking about the how he came about in the process of the constitutional making process. Yeah, that's fine. All right. That's fine. Right. So, um, you know, I came in and... Um, there were three political parties which were involved, uh, ZANU-PF, the MDCT, and the MDCM, which was also sometimes called the MDCN. Um, th- these parties were involved in the negotiations of the Constitution. Um, and um, when I came, I discovered that there was a lot of... Um, it, was, it was very adversarial in the sense that... Uh, the, the different parties were one on one side and the other two on the other side. And uh, when I came in, even though I had been invited to advise the MDCT, I saw my role as one where I could help to bridge the gap uh, that was there between the parties. And uh, in the end, I developed a healthy relationship with uh, everybody from the three political parties. The Democrats is a wonderful, wonderful documentary which uh, documents the experiences during the constitution-making process, and I would encourage uh, every Zimbabwean to watch it. Uh, 
Uh, the only thing I would say is that uh, it uh, does portray two uh, of the actors, and uh, I wish it had included the third actor. Uh, the two actors were Paul Mangwana from ZANU-PF and Douglas Monzora from the MDCT. But there was also another man, I would call him the third man, the silent man, uh, Edward Mkosi. He was representing the MDCM. And he played a very, very important role. And I always try to highlight this whenever I speak to people about the constitution-making process because although he was representing the so-called smaller party, he actually was the guy who pacified, he was the guy who brought the two big political parties together whenever there were feuds. And, and so his role, I hope, is not forgotten in the documentation of history. Yeah, well, hopefully we'll also get a chance to, to bring him on to, onto the platform and you know, maybe speak about that in his capacity. Um, when it comes to the Constitution, a lot has been debated about our Constitution. A lot has been said. Um, you know, some people have tried to argue that some people in our groups and in our chats have said we don't have a good Constitution. It's not a good Constitution. Uh, some people have said it is a good Constitution. You are part of the process. What do you think of the product that came out of that mm -hmm. process you went? A good question, Chris. Um, but I have to say, I, I have to add a qualification before I begin. I'm sure. biased, obviously, oh. <laughs> because I was part of the process. Yeah, um, yeah. But um, the more important point, I think, is to say that a, a constitution is as good as the people who operationalize it. In other words, the people who implement it. Uh, a good constitution is as good as the people whom it is supposed to apply to. So um, I've written before that you can have the most beautiful constitution with all the beautiful words, but unless the people who are running, you know, the, 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 the system, the people who are supposed to apply it, the people who are supposed to defend it, unless they are committed to it, it's going to be a useless piece of paper. Um, the constitution that we have right now is not perfect by any means. It was a product of uh, compromise between politicians, and therefore there are some great things about it, but there are some things which I wish could have been better. But overall, I have to say that I am generally satisfied by the document that uh, we ended up with. And uh, like every constitution, it's a living document. It can be improved over time. Let me just also say that many times we compare ourselves to different countries. Mm. South Africa has a great constitution, and it's been a benchmark for many countries. But part of it is because their government since 1994 has been faithful to the constitution most of the time. And they've been able to obey court orders. They've been able to implement whatever is required to be done. And that's important for the constitution to survive. If you go to the US, uh, in America, the USA, if you go to the United Kingdom, they also have their own constitutions. In fact, the United Kingdom does not even have a written constitution in the sense that we have in America or South Africa or Zimbabwe, but they run their country according to the norms, according to the rules that they have created over time, which together make up the British constitution. You'd be surprised at the amount of power that the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom has through the Queen. You'd be surprised at the amount of power that the United States President has. And all this is there in their constitutions. But what makes a constitution work is the, is the sense that those who are in power are able to respond, are able to obey, and are able to implement the rules according to uh, the rules of constitutionalism, which I will explain later. All right, cool. Um, I don't know if Henry can hear, but 
Hello, Henry. Um, no, I can I can hear that. Yeah, we see, we seem to be having a bit of technical yes, difficulty. I can see that. Yeah, <laughs> but, but it's okay. Yeah, no, we'll we'll we'll, we'll, we'll work through it. Um, you you spoke about Chris, it being. I'm, I'm I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, no. Um, I was just for. Um, I don't know what your your follow up question was going to be, but no. I was actually going to ask about. Um, you know, you've seen a lot of um, political cases um, being, or political actors, um, whether they've said every to the president, whether they've, you know, been denied, uh, uh, you know, protests or whatever, you know, predominantly political players and their issues have been, uh, you know, asking for referral to the constitutional court on every matter that there's come away. Um, I, I just wanted to ask from almost a legal and political opinion that do you think that, you know, this is what was envisioned with the new constitution that its major tests are going to be political tests? Um, you know, like you said, it's a victim of, it's a, it's a result of compromise, a political compromise. So is it then, you know, more a political constitution than it is a legal constitution or it's meant for political players more so than the average Zimbabwean? Uh, and, you know, do you think the courts are being inundated with these cases and it's perhaps political battles should remain political battles and not be taken to the courts? Um, again, a good question. Um, you know, we, we, we have to go by what is obtaining in our political environment. For the past 17 years, I think Zimbabwe has been um, very much you know, a political country in the sense that a lot of things that we are doing are, are related to the politics of the country, the political contestations. And therefore, a lot of the disputations that are taking place are taking place as a result of what is coming out of the controversies from the politics. The Constitutional Court was created specifically as a separate court in order to handle all constitutional matters, whatever their character. I have to say that uh, sometimes the cases that gain publicity are the cases that are of a political nature. That, that again, is uh, part of the reflection of what our media or how our media deals with these issues. They tend to deal with the political cases and political issues and they get prominence. However, there are also very important other cases which are coming up in, in the Constitutional Court. They simply don't get the publicity that they should deserve. Um, and I think that um, it's not, uh, you know, beyond the norm that the political cases are more and more as we head towards the 2018 elections. However, um, I like to think that once we solve our politics and once we start moving forward, you will be getting more and more prominent cases. I'm sure you remember the case of child marriage, um, which was handled by my brother Tendaibiti uh, last year. Um, a victory for for young girls, for you know young children who have been forced into marriage. There is nothing political about it. It's an important case which deals with uh, issues of social justice, which deals with issues of uh, protecting um, you know young people. So there are more cases like that, and we would like to see lawyers bringing in test cases, challenging, for example, the, the right to to health, for example, the fact that you know people are not getting the adequate attention that they need. We need to get lawyers bringing in those cases and bringing in test cases for the Constitutional Court in order to develop our jurisprudence. 
All right, you you spoke about when we deal with the political um, environment and the space. Um, is that something that you see we can deal with as a country? We're going towards the 2018 elections right now, and a lot is being said about, you know, BVR, for example, which is another issue among with to deal with the Constitution. Um do you think we have the capacity or that we have or that it's it's something that will come about and what needs to happen for that to come about mm. well you know as i as i have pointed out um a lot of the cases which are coming up or a lot of the issues that are being raised in our country are related to the politics uh, but i'm always fascinated by when i'm here and i go into the streets um, just this morning i spent some time Kumagaba, Kusiaso, one of my favorite places because there's a lot of entrepreneurship, a lot of business going on there and uh, very often not documented uh, so people don't see that side of our country. Um, I think that we need to focus uh, on the politics but also focus on the, the human stories that are coming up. Um, are we going to see more of the political cases or definitely are we able to handle them? I like to think that we can develop as a people I'm looking at us in 2008 and how things were so bad, the violence that took place during that time. And I think that, uh, and I hope that we learn from that, that uh, no individual, no person should ever die or kill on account of politics. Um, we should be able to have contestations between us as individuals, between political parties, in the realm of ideas, but um, it requires mature political leadership from those who are in leadership positions to encourage the young people, especially the youth, you know, the young men. They tend to be the ones who are pushed into or invited, uh, persuaded uh, by their superiors to engage in these acts of violence. And I'm thinking 2013 was a little better. There wasn't as much violence as we had seen in 2008. But I think we need to continue to progress as a people. Are we able to solve our politics? I like to think that we can solve our politics, yes, because that's what's important for us in order to solve the economic question. But are our leaders up to the challenge to actually say to the, the people in their parties, you know, this is how we need to go? Um, I, I'll, I'll, I'll give an example in the sense that people here tend to be very much about personalities and persons, more so than, than about ideas. And it seems that... Um, the people that are in politics now and um, aren't going towards speaking about issues. You hear, you know, in the MDC, in, in ZANU-PF, it's the president's youth interface and that's their, part of their campaign strategy and they're all going and it's meet the president to everyone. Um, in MDC, you hear Save Chete Chete, you know, it becomes more about um, uh, Changirai than it does about, you know, the ideas of the MDC or what those ideas are. When other people join the political space, um, you know, they, they are said to be splitting votes and all sorts of things that are, or, you know, or the question that Tangra asked of Nkosana Moyo, we, does he have people, does he know where um, Biri, I think it was, is. So do we have the mature politicians to actually bring about a change? Or are we just going to see, and it's not just the leaders, it's also the, the supporters of these parties. They speak the exact same language and they say, don't come into the space, you're splitting the vote. You know, they're the ones who say these slogans and sort of thing. So do we have the capacity or is there 
some glimmer of hope to say, you know what, whilst it's been this way for so long, we are actually going to start changing in, in, in the near future. Or there are some leaders I can point to to say, well, this is where the change is happening. Um, again, I think um, an important question, are we able to change? Do we have the leaders to provide or to facilitate that change? I, I think uh, what gives me hope, or maybe the green shoots of hope, if I put it that way, is that we are beginning to see a new generation of young people who are coming up and uh, becoming more and more interested in the politics, uh, in the civil issues, uh, and engaging in different ways you know, the terrain is so different from what it was in 1999 when the MDC emerged. The terrain is so different from 2008. Um, you know, there are new actors uh, coming up. I often say to my peers that uh, a baby who was born in 1999 will be, you know, my mathematics is never good, but they should be 18 19. Now. 19. Yeah, 18 now. 18 and now 19 and 19 next year. Next year. Yeah. And in other words, they will be eligible to vote. Um, I don't think that it would be stupid for any politician to take the vote of that young person for granted because the way they view the world, the way they see things, is completely different from the way that I view things. I'm 42 this year, and um, I grew up in an era when ZANU-PF dominated, and then the MDC came up as a challenge. My politics is so different from the politics of uh, a young person who is going to be 19 next year. The aspirations they have are different from the aspirations that I had at their age and even now. So politicians would be naive if they took for granted that just because it's a young person, they can tell them that they want to build a bridge next year or that they want to give them a job next year and therefore they'll get a job, they'll get a vote from those persons. They have to understand young people. I don't think that the politicians have done enough to invest in researching and finding out about young people's aspirations, what it is that they want, um, if I were a politician and if I were in one of these political parties, I would be doing more to bring in young people into, into politics, uh, bringing in young people, giving them safe seats in order to contest. We want to see an 18-year-old or a 22-year-old in parliament next year. That would be wonderful because they will bring in new ideas. They will bring in fresh uh, ideas and a new worldview, which... Uh, our generation and the generation ahead of us and the generation beyond that one have. And so I think it's important for me, the youth, the young people have always been so important in the way that we reconfigure our politics and our economics uh, over the coming few years. After all, they are the major stakeholders of the future and they should be involved. I've spoken to politicians of all different uh, you know, types and I've said to them that if you don't invest in young people, then you are doing a lot more to harm this country than perhaps those who were colonizing this country ever did. Okay, so, well, that's a, <laughs> that's a bit of a big statement. <laughs> um, but let's, uh, you, you speak, you know, you, you, you say you've spoken to some of these politicians and you said if you were a politician, this was what you do. But you were um, uh, President Morgan Changirai of the MDC's um, advisor whilst he was Prime Minister, you said from 2012 to 2013. So you have been in this advisory role. Um, perhaps, you know, just tell us how that came about and now how you are no longer part of the team. And I'm assuming mm. that you are no longer part of the team because you are back to teaching in, in, in Kent. <laughs> yes. Um, good question. I first um, came to work with uh, uh, Prime Minister Twangirai in 20, 2012. 
um, uh, and how it came about, um, to be honest, I've never asked, except that um, I was invited to his house one day. I'd been working with the Constitution, uh, making committee COPAC, uh, advising Mr. Monzora, Tendaibiti, Elton Mangoma, who were representing the MTCT. And um, I, I used to get lots of people from the MTCT saying that, thank you, you are doing a good job. And I would also even get people from ZANU-PF saying, you know, I was doing a, a fairly good job. Um, and, and I found that... So a good job from MDC and a fairly good job from, from ZANU-PF. <laughs> yes, I mean, <laughs> I, I think it was understated, but uh, <laughs> I, I appreciated the fact that uh, I had built a good relationship with everybody and sure. that I was making a contribution, not just to a political party, but also also to the nation. And so that was that was gratifying to me in some ways. Um, and, and then I, I was invited by Mr. Tangirai. You know, he said um, he would like me to consider working with him in an advisory capacity. So I'm, I like to think maybe Wade had got to him as well, that maybe this uh, young fella had a few ideas that he could share. And uh, I was humbled by that request. I took some time to consider it because obviously that, would have, that, that meant a lot of changes for me. And um, eventually I accepted and I said I would come and help. And I came in and I, you know, played my part. I, you know, played my part in uh, sharing my thoughts and ideas um, but as I say to people, you know, I, I, you know, in the past, perhaps I would have said, who is advising so-and-so? Who is advising this party? Who is advising this government? Who is advising this football club? And I would heap all the blame on them. Uh, but having worked in an advisory capacity, I now appreciate that the job of an advisor is to advise. And that's where your remit ends. At the end of the day, whether or not your advice is taken or used, or implemented, that is up to the principles that are, you know, that have invited you. But it was a fascinating experience, and I, I came up with uh, a lot of respect for a lot of the people that I, I worked with in the MDC. I still maintain very good relationships with them. Uh, although I'm not formally uh, part of the team, I still have a very cordial relationship, and very often I, you know, make a courtesy call on all the people that I worked with, whether it's Mr. Tangrai, Mr. Biti, um, you know, even my old teacher, Professor Ngube, when there's a chance, I'm happy to engage with them. So would you say, though, that, you know, your advice was uh, was heeded or the advice that you give that you gave whilst you were, you know, part of the team um, at the time? Uh, was it advice in his role as prime minister or in his role as prime minister and as president of the MDC? It was a bit of both. You know, we were going into an election and therefore, but there was also a government that was being run mm -hmm. and there were things that ne needed to be done. Um, I often say that um, one of the most interesting parts of my job at the time was I was like a gatekeeper. You know, I was like the guy who, who stands at the gates and opens the gates for so-and-so to enter or so-and-so. You can go, you can go. So I was like a security guard in a way. <laughs> um, but it was, it was fascinating because... Um, it also taught me a lot about what power does. When you, are, when you have power, a lot of people want to be with you. Um, but when you don't have power, you know, people tend to stay away. So it was, it was quite interesting, all the characters that we used to see then and that I don't see that much anymore. Um, so it taught me a lot about, you know, the, power, the dynamics of power. My advice, um, you know, like I said, if you have 10 pieces of advice, it doesn't mean that all 10 pieces of advice will be implemented. 
Some of them will be taken up. Uh, some of them may not be taken up. Some of them may be modified. And also, of course, I suppose the challenge is that uh, when you are in an advisory capacity, it's not an exclusive role. There are other persons who may also have different ideas. There are things that I wish uh, could have been heeded, uh, could have been implemented, um, but there are things that I'm happy were also implemented. Okay. Um, I think I need to put out a disclaimer and say that we lost Henry again. Uh, and so some of the questions that he was going to ask, I don't know what they are, and it's a bit difficult to get him back, but we're okay. just going to wing it until the end. That's okay. Um, now, you spoke about the young people, and there's this... Uh, the, the, the internet seems to be a space that has opened up and a lot of conversations about Zimbabwe, about Zimbabwe and everything, politics, sport, um, social life, social lights is happening on Facebook, Twitter. Um, you yourself have a, a website, a blog that you run, uh, The Big Saturday Read. I think it started off as Alex Magaisa. Um, and now every week you put out some very long articles that we've, um, quoted on our show quite a couple of times. Mm. Uh, the one I remember is the one, uh, the, the Chief Justice one, right. which uh, we are very appreciative of. Mm. Uh, we do cite where we get our individual <laughs> our information That's good. from. That's good. <laughs> but um, do you think, now the question is, do you think that um, the internet is a good indication of the fortunes of Zimbabwe and Zimbabwean politics, for example. Um, you had Baba Jukwa in the 2013 elections who, um, some will say, sold people a dream. You know, they, they really bought into the fact that the MDC was going to win. And now you have all these, this hype on social media. Mm. Uh, when Ivan Maware and this flag was a thing, there was all this social media hype. But when stairways and such were called, no one, you know, showed up to the demonstrations and the stayaways were, except for the one, you know, they all but failed. So how does the internet space, or how do you think the internet mm. space, because you are very active on, mm. on social media platforms, how do you think it relates to the reality of, of what's happening in Zimbabwe? Mm. No, thanks very much for that. Um, you know, there's this saying that you've got to take it from the tweets to the streets. Um, it, it's an indication of the difference between what happens on social media and what happens on the ground space. Um, having said that, the internet, I think it's a fundamental, it's an important tool in this day and age. And in particular, going forward, I always talk about events, not as of today, but we must look forward five years from now, ten years from now. You can't, you can't say that the internet is not so useful today, therefore we won't do anything about it, but we'll wait for five years. In fact, you have to start now and build uh, your presence on social media because uh, you know political parties should not always be focusing on the next election. I think they must also be focusing on their growth and development going forward. Now, um, I, I use social media a lot, um, as you pointed out, maybe I should have done that in my introduction, uh, but I'm not very good at talking about myself. But thanks for raising the Big Saturday Read. Uh, the Big Saturday Read is a space that I now use in order to share ideas. I often say to my colleagues in academia that it's a bridge between the academic stuff that is churned out by my fellow academics and the ordinary citizens. Because we academics tend to use you know, very complicated language, sometimes esoteric terms, 
which people cannot engage with. And when we write our books, they might sell here and there, but then they're put in the library, they gather dust, and uh, not much comes out of it. I try to read all the brilliant stuff that my friends and my peers are doing. Now, now let me just uh, interject slightly sure. there. The big Saturday read, it came out on Saturday, and you're talking about academics who use esoteric language. Uh, on Saturdays, we used to get Nathaniel Maneru in, in, in the Herald. Was it a, a counter to, to what Maneru was doing in the Herald? Not really. Um, I'll tell you the, how it came about very, very quickly. Yeah. I used to write a lot, and my staff used to go out into different newspapers and different websites. Sure. And I didn't really mind where it went. But someone who is into branding said to me, Alex, you know, you need to create a space which is permanent, something that people can go to at any time. Mm-hmm. And uh, you need to create a brand. And we were actually having a drink, so sometimes a drink helps. And um, <laughs> And um, I thought of an idea. I said, maybe I could call it the long Saturday read. Mm. Uh, and I said, no, it doesn't sound very right. So I said, the big Saturday read. And then everybody said, yeah, that's great. And so it became the big Saturday read. Okay. Um, the reason is because the weekend is a time when people are more relaxed. So even if I write a long article, um, then people can read it. But I'll tell you this. I love writing. And I always say that um, I, if Chris doesn't agree with me, on the idea, on the content of my piece, sure. I would like at least him to say, you know what, Alex, I don't like what you say, but I like the way you put it across. So I pay a lot of attention to the way in which I present myself, mm-hmm. to the way in which I present my work, uh, to make the work more palatable, easy, you know, uh, to take in for people. And um, I, I never set it out to be a, a contrast to Nathaniel Maneru, whom I read a lot, uh, to, uh, you know, by the way, because... I always say that uh, all information, all knowledge that is out there is something that uh, should be read. And I shared a, a passion. I, I suppose Nathaniel Maneru must have uh, done some literature classes. Uh, so we, <laughs> we, we, we shared a lot of interest in Chinua, Shakespeare, and, and so forth. So it's just that we expressed ourselves in different ways. But I think in the realm of ideas, it's, uh, it's something that I respect. I didn't agree with uh, the stuff that he might have said, but I, I respected the... The, the idea that he was, you know, putting up his side of uh, things the way I do in, with my big Saturday read. Okay. And frankly, I wish we had more people doing that. It, it, indeed. I, I, I also think that, you know, the space needs um, people to, to contribute in, in various ways. And this is what we're trying to do as well. Um, sometimes I don't think the writing skills are up to a <laughs> level yet, but talking is, is something a lot easier. So we're, we... we you know, we set out this, this this program. We were speaking about, you know, the internet and its space. And now, uh, just based on that, you have your um, individuals who have come into the political space. Mm-hmm. Of this background of support from online, Fadzai Mahere, for example, mm-hmm. was very, had a very big following on online and has now declared a candidacy um, in Mount Pleasant. Um, Kosana Moyo, uh, he's making use of the online space quite a bit right now. Uh, but there has been, you know, this backlash of people saying, ah, you don't have what it takes on the ground. You're going to split the vote um, and, and all these things. I don't know what your opinion is on the in- new entrance into the political space. Um, mm. These two that we've seen, and I'm sure in the coming weeks, we're definitely going to get more people coming into it. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, you know, 
let me say first, I know Fadzai, um, I know Ngosana. These are people uh, that I've engaged with before and we continue to engage. And um, they, they have my best wishes in, in, as they uh, progress in their political careers. Um, we may not uh, always agree on things that is natural in politics. Uh, we may agree on other things, as I do uh, with all the political players. Um, you know, social media, I think, is it's important because especially depending on the demographics that you are dealing with. And uh, if you look at, there are many, so many young people today um, who are eligible to vote, but they don't, tend not to vote. And so using social media as a tool to mobilize young people, to encourage them to go and vote, um, I think if, I don't know if there's any research that has been done, but um, I do know that, uh, you know, looking at anecdotal evidence when I see my nieces and my nephews at home, uh, they're spending most of their time on social media. They're on their phones, which means you need to get information to them through, through social media, not the traditional newspapers, not the traditional channels that we're used to. So I think that uh, any progressive politicians should understand and appreciate that social media is important. But having said that, it's also important to understand that uh, there is a large section of the population that is not social media savvy. You know, I was in Magaba, Matapi, uh, this morning, walking around and talking to people and just seeing relatives, some of them who live there. And um, you realize that people are engaged. It's like a hand-to-mouth survival strategy. They have to survive. They are looking for stuff. They don't have time to spend on social media as much as, you know, the other, you know, uh, you know, people who may have things a little easier. Um, so we need to understand that in the rural areas, I was there the weekend, they don't have the same, they've got connectivity issues and so forth. So relying on social media is good. I think it should be encouraged, but I think it's also important to understand that the ground space is a different space. You need to do door-to-door -door engagement with people. The other time, I think I wanted to say, you know, having lived in the UK, there's something that I found very fascinating, which you don't always have here. They call them town hall meetings, mm. where you go to a community, you go to Highfields, Moindaku CJ, or you go to Mbari, go to Stoddard Hall, you meet with small groups of people. You don't have to have, we tend to think that um, a political gathering should be a rally. 50,000 people. you've got 50,000 people <laughs> and then say, how many people were there? Yeah. But you know what? With that big rally with 50,000 people, it's only the politician who has spoken to the people. The yeah. people have said nothing. You know, so people are just recipients. It's a one-way uh, information uh, channel. Whereas a town hall meeting is different. You've got uh, small groups of people talking to the politicians, the politicians listening, but the politicians also talking to the people, visiting uh, factories. Okay, we have fewer factories now, but go to Magaba. You know, go to Magaba, go and talk to the people. They just engage with them, find out what they are thinking. And uh, that way you are able to formulate policies. We tend to, you know, sit down in our nice little hotels and uh, we invite academics from South Africa, from Australia, from the UK, from our local universities and say, let's develop a policy. And we come up with a policy which is so divorced from the daily realities of the people. And I would love them, you know, political parties to engage in you know, more grounded research. And this comes from engaging in different campaign strategies. I love social media, but I don't want us to be in an echo chamber where you end up hearing your own voice, where you end up hearing your own voice either usually it's reflected by your supporters. I mean, I, I get so many people who say, Alex, you're a great man. 
I mean, if I if I took those words, you know, to heart, I would be flying all the time. Mm. Uh, but I realized that uh, yes, these are people who like the work that I do. But I also understand that there are also other people who disagree with me, but they may not express themselves in the same way as my fans do. And I always have an ear for that person who doesn't speak okay. and realize that they are there. So, so how do you rate now, you know, all these things that have been said about these uh, candidates, independent candidates and new political parties, especially when it comes to, you know, we're going towards the elections and they, they, they've declared their interest and some people in the opposition have come out and said, well, they're going to split the vote. Their supporters have said they're going to split the vote. Um, what's your take on this hmm. splitting the vote issue? Well, you know, first of all, I think the idea of splitting the vote uh, presupposes that there is a given situation which is accepted by everybody. Hmm. And therefore, when someone is said to be coming in to split the vote, uh, it suggests there is a you know a vote that is to which one party is entitled to and therefore will be split. I mean, if that vote is going to be split, then there's probably a problem with the messaging or the way in which you engage with your people. I would like our people to be more democratic, to understand and appreciate that um, you need to have, if you have more voices, as long as your message, the message that you are putting across is strong and persuasive enough, you'll still be able to get more supporters on your side. And in fact, for me, it's not about bashing the new actors who are coming in. It's about working with them, you know, showing them that if they are wrong, then show them in a way that they understand that they are wrong and, you know, bring them together. Um, I think it's important to have fresh voices. Uh, it's a challenge not just to the ruling party, but it's also a challenge to the opposition. It means that they have to work hard in order to retain the support they have from before but also to work hard in order to get in those supporters who have been sitting on the fence. You know, uh, sometimes the opposition and the ruling party tend to have an unfortunate uh, sense of entitlement that uh, the people of Zimbabwe are divided between the two of them. You know, that I think is a fallacy that needs to be challenged. And I think the new candidates who are coming in, let them join the party. If they come up with two votes, that's okay. If they come up with more votes, that's okay too. It's about getting in the quality. It's not about a, a contest of uh, saying there's only one party and the other party. As long as they've got their policies in place and they would like to appeal to the voters, let them do it, you know. And, 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 and now, speaking about that as well, there's now the coalition. And you spoke about, you know, there's people who think that we are divided into uh, ZANU-PF and the MDCT, which is the largest opposition. Uh, what are your thoughts on the coalition? Um, you know, how do you see it playing out? Do you think it's something that will come about? And is it a the best way for which for the opposition to you know go up against Zanu PF in the next election? Well, if we proceed from the assumption that the opposition parties uh, are not just opposed to are just are all opposed to Zanu PF, but they are together in all other ideas, then naturally it makes sense for the opposition parties to work together. But if the opposition parties are opposed not just to ZANU-PF but also to each other, then obviously the coalition idea becomes very difficult and tricky. My own preference, as I have said before, uh, is that uh, if the opposition wants to mount a serious challenge against ZANU-PF, uh, they need to find each other 
uh, they need to find a way in which they can work together because in that way, uh, if they are going to share the collective, you know, the economies of scale argument, this is what, is what would make sense. Uh, but again, like I said, all this depends on whether the parties themselves actually are united in everything else except uh, in everything else, including the idea that they want to defeat Zanupio. Do you think it's, 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 it's something that will work? I mean, Nkosana Moyo has, has, has come out, he's a newbie on the, on, the, on the field, and he said he's not joining any coalition because he doesn't know what the coalition is about. That's the first thing. Also, he hasn't met anyone who articulates, you know, um, what he stands for and what his policies are. So there's no point in him joining the coalition. If you look at um, the other actors in it, uh, Joyce Mujuru seems to, I think, I might be mistaken, but I believe on, on Ruveneko's platform, she said that she wanted to be to lead the coalition or she's open to the idea of leading the coalition. Uh, Morgan Changirai has said all tributaries flow into Save, you know. <laughs> um, so there's clearly quite a lot of disconnect. We've seen the MOUs sign, but we don't know what those MOUs contain. Uh, perhaps you might, being having been an insider, you might be able to share with us what exactly is happening if you do know. But it, it doesn't seem that there's, it's going anywhere specific. And also, you know, right now it seems focused on the leader rather than what's going to happen as well in the constituencies. And one thing I know for sure is that with the egos that Zimbabwean politicians have, if one is snubbed without perhaps a primary election in these coalition um, debates, they can very easily come and stand as an independent. And that is likely to split the so-called vote mm -hmm. more so than anything. So I don't know, you know what your thoughts are on these things and, and if you actually believe that it is something that can play out. Mm. Well, um, you had a lot of things in there, Chris. Yeah. I will start with um, the idea of Nkosana. Uh, Nkosana uh, is, is a good man. Like I said, I know him. Um, you know, I've spoken to him before. And uh, I like the idea that he wants to, you know, throw his head into the ring. You know, like I said, all Democrats, if they wish to show that, they should show that they are, they are capable of uh, persuading people and convincing them to support them. And that's not a bad thing. Um, but I also think that, uh, and I've always said this to people who are new to the terrain, that it's always important to respect those who have been there. I think a show of respect is useful to understand that uh, there are people who have been in this game. There are people who understand the challenges, who have gone through the challenges. I don't think it's useful to have a fight between the new guys and the old guys. They need to uh, respect each other. Um, in, in the old guys should also be arrogant and say that uh, the newbies are coming in, they know nothing. No, I think it's important to have a mutual respect between the older guys and those who are, who are new. And I think that will probably open up a better way in which they can work together. Because usually antagonisms come through very, very small things. A minor word, a minor term that is quoted in the paper and all hell breaks, breaks loose. Um, in terms of um, the whether or not a coalition can work, yes, of course, you're right. Egos tend to stand in the way. My own experience in the past uh, uh, decade or so is that the challenge is not really at the leadership level. The challenge is often at the subordinates level. You know, the vice presidents, the secretary generals, the MPs, you know, because if you are going to share the cake, 
it means you've got to share it proportionately between the different between the different structures of the different political parties. So even if they agree at the leadership level as to who is going to lead the coalition, there will be challenges as to who is going to be vice president, who is going to be uh, who is going to be standing in Mazoe, who is going to be standing in uh, Pelandaba, who is going to be standing in uh, Tamandai, and so forth. You know the different constituencies or areas. Those are the challenges because this MP from the MDCT will say, oh, but I've been in this seat for 15 years. Why should I give it up? Um, you know, a new MP might say, well, you know, a, a, an aspiring candidate might say, you know, you've been there for 15 years. Maybe we need to try something new. You know, so it's, it's that part of the coalition arrangement that is often very tricky. And it's not helped by the fact that we've got a huge number of seats in parliament, 210, and then the proportional representation as well. And... Um, I, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, if we want to see a progressive politics, normally countries have a two-party system, and uh, it tends to work well. There will be other smaller parties that come up, but I think with the two-party system, you tend to have a good balance between the ruling party and the opposition. And uh, if they can come together, there are countries where coalitions have uh, have been have been successful uh, recently in the Gambia. But of course, we are not comparing like for like. Uh, but it's important to understand that if they're going to work together, they have to drop the egos and they have to understand that uh, the main goal, they have to agree on the goals, they have to agree on the objectives before they can do anything else. Okay. Um, I think just to, to, to wrap up, um, we can get to maybe one last or couple of questions. In your own opinion, as you see things, how do you think 2018 is going to play out um, in terms of the election? You know what, um, this country is inundated with uh, all sorts of persons who have divine powers to see the future. Um, my my and, own... And, and, and apparently some of our ministers were visiting those individuals <laughs> recently. Apparently, yes. Yes, and unfortunately, I, I, my capacities uh, do not extend to that, to that uh, realm. Mm. What I can say is that, um, you know, elections are very very unpredictable. Our elections can be unpredictable, um, even though sometimes when it seems so simple. And I always refer back to 2008. 2008 is a space in which no one really was sure where things were going to go, even though, you know, well, there were a few who thought that it was, it was an easy election, but I think the March 29 results showed us how things could be so different when people have got their own ideas that they express publicly but other ideas that they express privately. And looking at 2018 and where we are with the economy, with the state of the political parties, it seems to me that we are in a fairly similar space. I'm not saying they are exactly the same, but there's a similar space in which we could have some very interesting surprises in 2018. Do you think we'll have a free and fair election? I mean, with what's happening with the BVR, we're supposed to all re-register, re-register, and we're still waiting on it. There's very scant information there. Mm. Um, I know you've spoken about it and you've said uh, that you, you don't think that we'll get biometric voter mm. registration by, mm. for the 2018 election. Mm. So will it be a, a credible election, one in which the people win or lose can actually say, well, you know what, we can, we can live with this because mm. we trust that it was mm. fair. Mm. You know what, uh, Chris, good question, because our challenge as a country, you know, in, in the recent elections, has always been about the credibility of the election. 
Um, the reason why the losers tend to complain and uh, uh, challenge the results is because they feel that uh, the process is not credible enough. I would have hoped that after 2013, with all the problems that we had then, that there would have been more efforts to improve the electoral system. But unfortunately, I think we have wasted four years doing not much really to improve the system. And I'm, a, I'm quite disappointed in ZAC, the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission, because they are the body who have the constitutional mandate to make sure that the election is free and fair, that it is credible. But unfortunately, uh, a combination of a lack of resources and perhaps also a lack of will uh, and determination to defend their constitutional mandate has, mean, has meant that we are at a stage where in less than 12 months to next, to next year's elections, we still haven't sorted out the voters' role. We would have hoped that by, by this year, we already have a voters' role, that people will be inspecting it, but we are still at the very, very early stages. We haven't even begun registering the people. And unfortunately, all this gives credence to the fears that the election is likely to be not free and fair and therefore not credible. And like I said, the challenge of our elections has always been a lack of legitimacy. And if we are going to go to 2018 at the stage where we are right now, I'm afraid that our situation is going to be pretty much the same. And it will be so difficult for us to recover our economy because, you know, get me right, I speak to a lot of people. I speak to a lot of people, you know, countries in Africa, Western countries, everybody in the East. They are all keen to see Zimbabwe progressing in a, you know, with, with working with them because Zimbabwe has been out in the doldrums for so long. But Zimbabwe has so many resources, but they are all confined now because they can't continue to deal with what they regard to be an illegitimate uh, system. So if we sort the election, I think that there will be a lot of opportunities that are opening up for Zimbabwe. Everybody is looking to Zimbabwe, but it requires us to open those gates. And by holding a free and fair and credible election, I think we will unlock most of those opportunities. So over the past four years, the opposition party, uh, quite a few of them, the MDCT, especially has been boycotting by-elections. Would you advise, as a former advisor, would you advise them to, if things do not change in terms of you know, our electoral preparations, if we don't get a new voters' role, would you advise them to boycott the, the, the 2018 elections or stage a protest of some sort? I don't know how. Well, you know, Chris, I, I find it very difficult for me to say what would I do if I were in this position. But what I would tell you is that what I was able to advise before 2013, yeah. which was that I did not believe the election it was going to be free and fair. I did not believe that it was a credible election and that uh, we should have uh, boycotted the election. Okay. Yeah. So, so that was my, my advice then, then in 2013. And uh, so I suppose from that you can extrapolate what if things haven't changed, what would be my view. Okay, fantastic. I think uh, it's been great having you here. I hope you've, I hope you've enjoyed. Um, unfortunately, we lost Henry and there oh, was a lot you. more. Yeah, there was a lot more that, you know, he might have wanted to share. But, um, you know, you are, you are back quite often, so maybe we'll get another chance to to have you on the platform. Um, where can people find you online? Uh, well, um, thank you very much, uh, firstly, for you know, bringing me in and having this uh, interesting conversation. Like I say, hopefully we'll do it again in, in future. There will be more opportunities. Um, you can find me on Twitter, um, at Wamagaisa, W-A-M-A-G-A-I-S-A. So it's Wamagaisa, that's my Twitter handle. And you can also find me on Facebook, um, Alex Magaisa. There's a page. 
And of course, uh, don't miss your Big Saturday Read, which you find on www.bigsr.co.uk. Yeah, unfortunately, there's no more Manero. I say unfortunately. <laughs> so, we, <laughs> you know, I used to wake up early on Saturday mornings and read Manero and read Magaisa, and then you know that you're... Your Saturday, yeah, but yes, now, yeah, now, now, now it's about 10, 11 o'clock. You're out of bed and you can have breakfast if you start <laughs> at about eight because they, they can be quite long, but very informative. And I do hope uh, you, you continue to write. Um, we'd like to see a book mm. on the constitutional mm. making process. Yep. I think yep. that was quite a very interesting period mm. um, for Zimbabwe and yes. um, its history and all of the things that, you know, I think his, the history of it. Mm. Regardless of which side is telling, I think this it's important for us to have these things documented. And mm. what you're doing, I appreciate it. Um, and I know a lot of people who do listen to our podcast and also follow you on, on social media appreciate it too. So thank you very much. Um, you've been listening to Politics and Beyond on Capital 263. My name is Christopher Farai Charamba. You can find me at Chris Charamba on all social media. Henry is not here, but you can find him at Henry BT on all social media. Thanks for tuning in. Also, uh, we've got video now as well. Um, thank you to 263 Chat, which has been helping us out with that. So the videos of these recordings will be posted on the 263 Chat page. Um, we'll also share out all those links on our social media. Uh, capital 26 free. Free to say it. Free to do it. And now. And now. Capital 263.